Uh, welcome, Ted Shetler. Uh, we're delighted to have this conversation with you today. Uh, um, our our topic is the implications of ecological health, and uh, you bring a very strong background to that. Uh, you are uh, one of the leading physicians in the environmental health science and activist community traveling across the country and around the world to talk about ecological health. Uh, you are uh, uh, one of the uh, leading uh, people in the science and environmental health network and also in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, uh, uh, holding uh, important with uh, both groups. Um, and um, you've thought a great deal about ecological health. So in order to start, because I believe that uh, people really respond best to understanding stories, I wonder if you could talk for a few minutes about your personal journey from being a practicing physician to a full-time uh, scientist uh, promoting uh, public and professional awareness of ecological health. What drove you uh, from uh, a satisfying medical practice uh, to make this uh, major career change? Well, uh, thanks, uh, Michael, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about this. I, as you suggest, was uh, in medical practice for a number of years, and in a somewhat parallel life, was also uh, engaged in a variety of activities uh, around uh, what are typically thought of or traditionally thought of as environmental health work. I worked on uh, river restoration in a community in Maine uh, where I was living. I worked on issues of uh, contamination of rivers with the pulp and paper by the pulp and paper industry in Maine. Um, have had a long uh, long interest in, in gardening and uh, uh, raising food and so forth. But what was interesting to me was that these seemed to be parallel tracks, and they didn't seem to be connected in any coherent uh, or consistent way. And that, uh, after a while, uh, that lack of coherence just seemed to matter more to me. And uh, I eventually decided to, to take steps to try to connect them in a more uh, contextual and comprehensive way, and that led me uh, back uh, into further training in public health, and uh, and then just uh, in some ways uh, following the way the winds blew uh, to find myself where I am now. But I think that's exactly what happens when you sort of uh, cast yourself loose into uh, um, these sort of sort of uh, swirl of energies and activities that are going on. So uh, that's a a short summary of how I ended up where I am now. You're the author of an important book, Generations at Risk, Reproductive Health and the Environment, an important report in harm's way, toxic threats to child development, and uh, over a dozen uh, research papers for the Collaborative on Health and the Environment on heart disease, on uh, developmental disabilities, uh, on autism, birth defects, uh, and uh, many other issues. Uh, out of this, you seem to have emerged with a, a personal focus on the concept of ecological health. And I wanted to ask you uh, to briefly describe the concept of ecological health and why you think it's important. Well, I uh, think that uh, in order to answer that, that I, I needed to go back and uh, re-examine what the word health actually means. And um, 
I originally, of course, thought of this as a traditional physician uh, often does, but uh, if one goes back to the uh, root of the uh, origins of the word health, you run into things like whole and holy and heal. Uh, and um, Wendell Berry, for example, has written uh, widely about this, and I think many of his essays uh, are consistent with what I'm talking about, and I've learned a lot from him in this regard, and that is the notion that to be healthy is to be whole. And that very quickly then uh, invites you to think about the context in which um, you're thinking about health. And suddenly the uh, rather artificial breakdown between individuals and families and communities and entire ecological systems uh, starts to disappear. And uh, so for me, the notion of ecological health uh, invites a whole new way of thinking about health and of thinking about our individual relationships to the communities and ecological systems in which we live. When you speak of Wendell Berry's work and the, the deep meaning of health and the connections between health and whole and holy and heal etymologically, um, do you make personally a, a deep division between scientific discourse on this and the deeper resonances in the language and in consciousness of words like whole and holy and heal? No, I actually think that that division is, is just one more example of the, of, 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 uh, of, of the so-called dualism that uh, um, has characterized science for the past several hundred years. And that actually... Um, at least for me, it's much more useful to think in a more organic way where those dualistic categories disappear. I, that isn't to say that they don't serve purposes uh, from time to time, but I think this division between, the, uh, between uh, matter and spirit, uh, between science um, and uh, the spiritual consciousness that you're talking about, are actually... I, I, I to some extent, understand their historical roots, but I also think they have led us into uh, uh, blind alleys in many cases that have uh, kept us from having a, a more organic or ecological conceptualization of, of health. And that um, I, I actually think that we're bumping up now in our lifetimes against uh, uh, the, the wall that that is, is leading us toward and that one of our challenges right now is to, is to find our way uh, beyond that. And I think it's probably somewhat unique now compared to years in the past because of the stressors which are becoming increasingly apparent to everyone as we look at the ecological systems, whether it's in our own communities or on a planetary level. When you speak of the stressors that are becoming increasingly apparent, when you speak to scientific audiences about ecological health, just returning to that point, what are the main categories, uh, not only of stressors, but of internal factors like uh, genetics and gene expression that you talk about? What are the boxes that you see interacting when you look at it from a, uh, a scientific perspective using the language that makes sense in the current scientific paradigm? Well, they are things like a genetic uh, inheritance. And then, um, as you mentioned, a, a couple of the books that I uh, co-authored uh, with colleagues um, 
put a lot of emphasis on uh, toxic environmental contaminants, uh, industrial chemicals, pesticides, uh, um, heavy metals, and so forth that um, are pervasive in our uh, in our landscape and in our bodies and in our in our food and uh, air and water and so forth. That and we were interested in the impacts of those on our our health, both individually and collectively. But but they are also uh, among the stressors. Others include the food that we eat and the way that we grow that food, which has a major impact on its nutritional value. Uh, infectious disease, of course, radiation, some of which is from natural sources, some of which is from uh, human sources. Uh, there's uh, a good deal uh, uh, to be uh, thinking about in terms of, of, of psychological and physiologic stress uh, that... Um, are both uh, the results of the ways we organize ourselves and decide how to live and uh, and all the things that flow from that, both whether it's in our personal and family lives or on a much more societal level. Um, so uh, there's no doubt I'm leaving one or two boxes out, but I think the important point is that uh, that that we do tend to break this larger concept of environment down into these more manageable pieces uh, that we uh, then try to study and understand. And my observation, the thing that has been really motivating me in the last several years is, uh, is to become more acquainted with their interactions, to, beginning, to begin putting them back together again into the system from which they were sort of derived, uh, uh, to begin to understand uh, how it limits us when we take the environment apart into those pieces and study them one at a time and then miss, and then miss the rich interactions uh, that actually do exist among them and that really, as we all know, characterize the complexity of the world in which we live. Give us an example of uh, this kind of interaction uh, that has intrigued you. Well, I've been intrigued with the interactions between uh, toxic chemical exposures and nutritional status, and, and it's for several reasons. Um, first, there uh, are some examples uh, that have been widely reported in the medical literature where we can actually begin to, to understand some mechanisms of these interactions. Things, for example, like children who uh, whose diets are deficient in iron. And by the way, that's uh, very common uh, in the United States. Uh, and I should point out, it's much more common in children who are living in poverty. Uh, so children whose diets are deficient in iron, um, uh, when they're exposed to lead, they actually uh, absorb more lead from the intestinal tract than if their diet was not deficient in iron, and it doesn't stop there, but they actually transport more of that lead into their brains than children who have uh, a, a, a diet that has a sufficient amount of, of uh, iron in it. So what you begin to see is an interaction between lead exposure, iron-deficient diets, and poverty. Well, now, that's kind of interesting, and what the literature also tells us is that if you address one of those but not all three of them, you don't really gain very much. Uh, of course, prevention of the cognitive and behavioral impacts of lead is what we would be most interested in. But if you have children who have been um, um, exposed to these various stressors uh, and you want to correct things, you really need to address all of them. Well, that raises an interesting question because 
how do you begin to address iron deficiency in the diet, lead exposure, and poverty altogether? And I, my observation is that in the, even in the world of public health, um, we tend to uh, apportion those responsibilities out to various agencies or areas of expertise, and rarely are people talking to each other about it. And I think it's an interesting challenge uh, for us all to begin to think creatively about how we might solve problems like that uh, with interventions that literally sort of address them collectively. Now, we have to be careful because we could end up causing more problems than we're solving uh, if we don't think uh, carefully about interventions. So there are ways to do that, I think, that can be uh, carefully done. But nonetheless, that's that's the idea of, of interactions that... Uh, uh, they're sort of uh, begging for uh, responses that are more comprehensive. At a scientific level, how can we even begin to study the complexity of the interactions between genetics, gene expression, toxics, nutrition, physiological and social stress, infection, radiation, and all the other factors that are affecting us? And as you said, we could add uh, many others to that uh, list. But how, uh, given that that we are immersed in this soup that has become increasingly inimical, inimical to uh, 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 healthy development, uh, how can we begin to uh, study and think about these interactions scientifically when all of our science has depended on our capacity to single out things in order to study them alone, which is complex enough as it is? Well, it's a good question, and of course, what we're talking now is beginning to lay out a scientific research agenda that will keep people busy for a very long time. Uh, systems biologists, for example, are are understanding the need to begin to reassemble the parts into a somewhat larger whole, and are starting at the molecular uh, DNA level, and then slowly uh, reassembling things into uh, Somewhat, uh, somewhat more complex systems, but still uh, not at the at the large ecological systems level that uh, we all know we would like to understand. Now, ecologists, on the other hand, um, are 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 face face a complex ecosystem, and then they try to understand it and have developed some techniques for doing it. Although it's my understanding that even in ecology, there's a tendency to take things apart. Uh, but the complexities very quickly overwhelm our capacity to do it. So I think what I what I'm taking from this is that we're that science is at a point where we understand the need to bring a systems approach to understanding, but we are also increasingly overwhelmed by the understanding that uh, our our tools and resources are are really quite primitive. Uh, to, to, to approach that complex of a problem. It's been frequently true in human history, has it not, that public health has moved in advance of science, that uh, uh, we have, uh, when we've begun to see relationships between uh, disastrous human health outcomes and environmental exposures, that often public health measures have been taken before we understand uh, the mechanisms, particularly when the interactions are this complex. Um, it seems to me that that, that observation has led uh, you and others to 
think about the concept of resilience, both at the individual level and the community level. In other words, given uh, the incredible complexity of the interactions that are affecting us as individuals, our children, our families, our communities, that, um, that any steps that build uh, psychobiological resilience may be beneficial uh, and any steps that reduce, uh, either reduce stress or increase uh, nurturance to the organism or the family or the community may be helpful in these extraordinarily complex interactions. Could you talk about uh, your own thinking about that and the field of exploration of resilience as a concept in relationship to ecological health? Well, I, I do think that there are certain principles that can guide interventions or, or, or decision-making, um, and, and your um, focusing on resilience, I think, is exactly right. That It's the notion of trying to build into systems, whether it's at the individual, family, community, or ecosystem level. It, it's the notion of trying to build buffering capacity or resilience into that system so that it is able to uh, absorb outside or internal stresses uh, um, uh, more readily. And, you, you know, you very quickly find yourself uh, bumping up against some very interesting philosophical questions because we all understand that change is really the rule and not the exception. Uh, this is not uh, a, an attempt to, to think that ecosystems or individuals or, or families or communities can be uh, somehow uh, uh, kept apart from change. Um, after all, uh, you know, birth is followed by uh, a period of living followed by death, uh, and that is inevitable, and it is uh, the way it is, whether it's at an individual or a community or an ecological uh, ecosystem level. So this isn't about uh, trying to keep change from happening, but it's about... Quite, there are questions as humans, I think, that we need to begin to answer and ask an answer that have to do with, well, what are the impacts of our activities and what is the world likely to look like if we continue along a particular trajectory? And is that a world that we want to contribute to? Or are there ways to build in resilience and buffering capacity so that the quality of lives of not only people but also other uh, species um, uh, can can be uh, maintained or improved. So that brings in the whole idea of restoration, as well as resilience. Uh, uh, so to 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 get to the point here, I think that there are concepts of resilience, restoration, buffering, self renewal. Uh, these kinds of ideas that we ought to be thinking about, as well as static endpoints, and we ought to be asking ourselves when we're contemplating an intervention, what does that do, or what might that do to the resilience of a system that we're interested in, or, or groups of individuals, or a community that we're interested in? What might that do to its buffering capacity? Uh, what, will that, what, what will that do to the distribution of wealth in a community of people? Because we know, for example, that uh, an increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots at certain levels can have major public health impacts. So thinking through how interventions ripple through systems and have impacts that are quite indirect but nonetheless related to the intervention is very much a public health idea uh, and 
Public health, of course, has a strong uh, history of being interested in prevention, uh, rather in preventing harm, rather than uh, uh, dealing with uh, damage after it's occurred. So if we were to um, imagine a world for a moment in which um, uh, public health officials, uh, the citizens both of this country and citizens of countries around the world, uh, government officials and everyone else, uh, simply seeing uh, the combined effect of climate change, the depletion of the ozone layer, toxic chemicals, the destruction of habitat, invasive species, uh, biotechnology, nanotechnology, and all the rest upon the wholeness of life had finally concluded that the piecemeal approach was not going to work. Um, and you were asked uh, to give your comments on what kinds of root public policies uh, were most critically important uh, to uh, restoration to buffering to renewal um, what how would you uh, uh, address the complexity of this how would you imagine um, uh, public uh, policies that uh, would begin to focus on restoration well uh, it's it's a little hard to be uh, uh, prescriptive of course outside of a particular context but there are some things that I think uh, should guide us, and that is we are in many ways uh, continually looking for the technological fix to a problem, um, and that, of course, has characterized medicine for uh, over 150 years, uh, where where medicine tends to think in terms of an ecological, in, in terms of a technological response as opposed to an ecological response. So I, you know, I, I think what serves me at least, our uh, 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 guiding ideas are to think uh, through the lens of ecology and evolutionary biology. Uh, so uh, I think that these are er these are neglected areas uh, by many disciplines, uh, and I uh, would strongly advocate for making study uh, and familiarity with ecology and evolutionary biology absolutely essential for public officials um, and certainly uh, in in our uh, educational system um, and uh, by all means uh, in particularly in the health disciplines where uh, very quickly people these days are being acculturated in ways that make us think of individual health outside of the context in which we live so Ecology and evolutionary biology as essential guides for uh, decision makers and decision making. What about the question of indigenous knowledge? What about the consciousness uh, with which indigenous peoples lived in the world and saw themselves and the world in which they lived in terms of holes? Uh, do you do you believe that there is um, any? Um, any capacity in modern uh, industrial and post-industrial civilization either to learn from or actually to, uh, I don't want to say return to, but uh, reintegrate um, that consciousness in our efforts to imagine a sustainable world. 
Well, not only do I think it's it's possible to do that, but I think it's essential to do that. And 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 you, uh, I think, made an important uh, point when you said, "I don't want to say return to," because it appears when one says that as if we want to return to some sort of uh, uh, more primitive uh, time, uh, and that isn't how I think of history. But uh, I do think that if 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 we're able at some point in the far distant future to look back uh, on this period of time, we will see that the period of time in which we've been living was was characterized by an extraordinary and unjustified faith in uh, te- in the development of technologies that were not uh, uh, at all embedded in the wisdom of the world, and that uh, what I think. Um, at least for me, has characterized the uh, the, the uh, indigenous uh, ways of knowing and thinking and behaving is that it's it was born out of a, a of a real wisdom of 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 how to be in the world. Uh, you know, um, if if we look at certain species that have been around for sixty five million years, and there are some. Um, there's a certain uh, wisdom <laughs> that's embedded, uh, and and we could probably even think about that in 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 strictly biological terms. That's embedded in these organisms, um, and similarly, certain certain uh, social ways of organizing are um, are are based on a a wiser understanding of of the world. Uh, and um, so, I think that it's it's truly essential. That we um, try to rediscover that um, as part of this effort toward restoration and building resilience. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of resistance to it because uh, we're living in a world where um, we uh, we we literally believe that we can continue to grow economically by pushing more stuff, more material stuff, through uh, human societies when we're living on a finite planet um, and. Um, the arguments that we need to continue doing that are that it is the best way to ensure that people live uh, lives of quality and more likely to keep us from fighting with each other. I mean, these these are the arguments that the economists and historians have raised, that if we stop growing economically and stop pushing this material through, uh, we'll inevitably end up in conflict. This is a, an enormous challenge, but uh, but... All of the efforts toward uh, returning to a, uh, a more uh, 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 defensible kind of material economy uh, are going to have to grapple with this um, because uh, it's clearly what we're doing now is not sustainable, and I think some of the wisdom from the uh, more traditional cultures uh, uh, that are, are crying out to be listened to. One thing that has struck me, Ted, is how... Uh unexpectedly widespread the observation that you made is in different parts of the culture. Uh, I've recently been reading a book by Peter Senge and others called Presence, and he and his colleagues are part of something called the Society for Organizational Learning at MIT, and they include uh, the CEOs of you know a whole bunch of major uh, corporations. And in this book, they literally speak about 
the impossibility of continuing to rely on technological fixes and how much junk can we push into the world and have the world metabolize it and you know what are the limits that people will accept but of the the rising gap between rich and poor so it's and and then they go in the same direction you just went uh to the need uh to return to a deeper wisdom and a deeper understanding uh and they managed to do this in a language that is absolutely or almost entirely separate from the languages that we uh normally hear this in languages of indigenous knowledge uh language of spirituality even language of ecology uh but rather in a language that speaks to their particular constituencies so um I'm just curious as to whether you sense that there may be a human capacity to uh move as a species at least in terms of a, a critical mass within the species to a level of consciousness at which what seems impossible now in terms of the shift that we're describing uh might actually take place and might actually take place in a relatively brief period of time. Well, I think there is the human capacity to do that. Uh whether or not it will happen uh, is anybody's guess. But uh I think one of the points that you made is essential uh and that is you 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 were struck by the uh language of Peter Senge and others in in the book that you're reading and it seems to me that uh the language uh is become it, it it's at least for me becoming increasingly important to think about the language uh, with which we discuss this and um, that we use uh, these are changes in many ways in in conceptualization um, as well as language so so it's not that I'm looking for or thinking we need to come up with another clever sound bite that will suddenly flip a switch uh, or persuade people so much as it is I, I think that uh, uh, that that language and metaphors that we use uh, in our language, and we use them all the time, are essential for uh, influencing the way that we behave in the world. And uh, I, I, it seems to me that we need to think carefully about that, particularly uh, in the educational system, because in my work in medicine, for example, I find much more resonance uh for some of these ideas in uh, among students than I do among uh physicians who have been in practice for many years uh and i think that ideas just become concretized in some people and uh, others uh, uh are somewhat more amenable to thinking about things differently so i i do think we have to i think the capacity is there but I, but I think we need to think carefully about language and metaphor. We have to try experiments. We have to find out where successful experiments are underway. We need to collect those. We need to tell those stories. We need to show that certain things are possible, often at a community level, um, and uh, and then and then think that, uh, how and, and and under what circumstances are transferable to a larger uh, uh, level. I'm going to ask one uh, final question personally, and then I'm going to open the lines to share the conversation with others, and I encourage uh, listeners who'd like to uh, speak to begin to reflect on what you might like to ask Ted or comment on. Uh, 
uh, and please identify yourself before you speak. Uh, Ted, my final question in, in this uh, section of our conversation is um, explicitly about the relationship between our understanding of ecological health and uh, uh, the total uh, complex set of stresses uh, affecting all life, but human life in particular. And the growth over the same period that we've begun to understand ecological health of integrative medicine, whatever you want to call it, holistic medicine, complementary medicine. Uh, I like integrative because it involves integrating the best of conventional and, and complementary approaches to health care. Um, but these have been parallel phenomena. Now, you're a physician, and... Um, uh, and it seems to me that that modern medicine has been characterized to a large degree, as as you suggested, by technological fixes. Um, uh, but we have this phenomenon developing at exactly the same time that we have the awareness of environmental health and the paradigm of ecological health, which is a, a newly holistic approach to personal health. And I wanted to ask you to comment on that parallel and um, uh, sort of where you see that leading, both in your own mind and your experience in medicine and uh, in uh, what we as a culture are trying to achieve. Well, I do see the parallels, of course, between the, uh, the uh, reconceptualization of ecological health um, extending uh, out beyond the individual uh, and attending to multiple stressors uh, and what's going on in integrative medicine. Uh, but as you also pointed out, um, much of integrative medicine is still being uh, addressed uh, and to, at the individual level, to, to the individual. Now, there's nothing wrong with that um, because clearly... Uh, there, there is a there is a place for attention to to uh, the health of individuals in this uh, entire framework. Uh, at the same time, I think our challenge is to figure out how to do that and to address uh, community uh, and planetary health. Uh, there, the one way that strikes me the the wedge the entree into this that strikes me as being useful to explore. Uh, and that is deeply uh, embedded already in integrative medicine is attention to nutrition. Um, and, I, and I bring that up because uh, we can have profound influence on individual health by attention to nutrition, and we can reduce a lot of the need for the technological responses uh, to diseases or conditions uh, by preventing them through nutritional interventions and, and eating well to begin with also helping to buffer against some of the other stressors. But the other point is that it seems to me to be an entree into a larger discussion about uh, how we're treating the land. Because uh, um, many, many years ago, uh, uh, Sir Albert Howard talked about the inextricable links between uh, the health of the soil, the health of food, and the health of people who are eating those, the food. This, the distinctions, he argued, were, were artificial, and that um, if you wanted to know something about the health of people, you needed to look at the health of soil uh, that was uh, growing the food that they were eating. And I think what, what, 
what the nutrition link does for me is is to bring us into a very specific conversation about industrial agriculture, about the way we're raising our food, all of the impacts uh, of, of agriculture on the health of ecosystems. It's terribly destructive the way we're doing it now in terms of air and water pollution, loss of biodiversity, loss of soil quality, and so forth. This is true all around the world. Um, and so I, I believe, you know, it represents a topic that we can bring into medicine, into integrative medicine, and into a larger discussion about social institutions uh, and apply it both at the family level, at the community level, at the state level, and at, at a, truly at a planetary level. Uh, I completely agree with you on nutrition. I, I would add that in, in the work I've done with people with cancer over the last 20 years, that when I talk about integrative approaches to health, uh, I talk about a vital quartet of spiritual, psychological, nutritional, and physical approaches to health, and the contribution that each of those can make and in interaction to enhancing resilience and making people healthier people with cancer or whatever other uh, disease they may happen to have, uh, and the scientific evidence that if you have better uh, functional status or uh, performance status, whatever oncologists choose to call being healthier, uh, there's good evidence that you tend to live longer with with most cancers. Uh, and and clearly, I think you would agree that uh, that uh, that's probably true across a wide range of illnesses and is true of preventing illness as well. So when you say that the, the, the area that you would focus on, I completely agree, is on nutrition and, uh, and the land. Uh, that's a very powerful area. I think I would simply add that that's part of a quartet of uh, four major approaches to the human spirit, to the mind, uh, to the body, and to diet. I completely agree, yes. So uh, I'd like to ask uh, the operator to open the lines uh, now, and please tell me when they're open. Certainly all lines are opening as we speak. Great. And please don't be shy, friends. Uh, we welcome questions and comments for Ted Shetler. Please give your name first. I'm going to speak up quickly then, because I have to go. My name is Ruth, Ruth West. I'm calling from Oxford, England. Ruth West, and welcome. Hello, welcome. I'm just very pleased to be part of this first conversation, but we've got to put that up. And it's just what Ted was saying about indigenous people, and to me, that what the practice to work with them was about that they never had to get off mind from that. It wasn't a problem for them. And they looked at me as though I was crazy. And then um, I was talking about materialism and things like that, and dualism things. Because the tragedy now is that their health is worse than most other people. There's a very interesting series of the Lance of last year, a series of three articles, which is pointing this out because of degradation of land and the usual things about um, toxic waste and things like that. And, and that's poverty. And so the work I'm doing with them now is actually to fight for their survival. <laughs> and, um, uh, yes, yeah, maybe it's going still there, but they're in a very bad position, situation right now. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, former the director of the Kessler Foundation and doing important work on uh, herbal pharmacies and indigenous uh, communities around the world. As I heard the core of Ruth's observation, it was simply a, an affirmation of the importance of this relationship between uh, our health and the health of the land, and that fits deeply, as I mentioned, with the important work she has been doing uh, in Latin America and elsewhere, uh, seeking to develop uh, herbal pharmacies in uh, 
uh, in indigenous communities and reacquaint indigenous communities with their own uh, rich tradition of uh, herbal approaches to health. I, I, I think that's right, and uh, it's kind of interesting to me because it's not intentional, I'm sure, but I think when we talk about the health, health of the land, we should be explicit about the health of the seas as well. Uh, uh, I, we're certainly in our lifetime uh, being shown how it, uh, it's possible to uh, overfish, uh, contaminate uh, the oceans in ways that uh, we are seriously going to regret. Um, and it's probably having uh, already ripple effects that we're not understanding fully. So uh, it's part of the, the, the emphasis on the land also is sort of the, the general uh, uh, well-being of the surface of the earth, including the water. Other comments? If not, I'm going to continue the conversation with Ted. We seem to have a, a silent community with us today. Um, Ted, I want to... Uh, you, you spoke of the importance of... Uh, language, the different languages that we use. And I fully agree with that. But I want to go back to uh, the question of consciousness, which really goes beyond language. Uh, language, it seems to me, emerges from consciousness at a certain level. And um, I'd like to ask you personally uh, to describe the trajectory in your own, la in your own life of uh, of the consciousness that has brought you to the work that you're doing now. Did you, from medical school onward, say, or even from uh, earlier, uh, have the same kind of consciousness about uh, the world and the work that needs to be done, or is this something that evolved? And if it evolved, uh, what, who were the teachers, what was the process? by which you came to the understanding that you hold today? Well, uh, a couple of thoughts come to mind. I, uh, I was fortunate enough in my very early childhood to, uh, to be able to, uh, number one, spend a lot of uh, time out of doors um, and in what then seemed to be wilderness, although uh, uh, in retrospect probably uh, not much of it was true wilderness, but it, it felt so at the time. And also with animals, um, I have um, always had a, a close connection with animals, both domestic and and um, non-domestic animals, and um, um, in fact I felt that at some deeper level. I think since childhood, um, and so for me, um, it's it's um, it's it's been a matter of cultivating early interests and uh, affiliations and rather than trying to discover or having discovered something uh, new in adulthood. And it's interesting also that um, there, um, I think this is true for a lot of people where early life experiences are extremely important in terms of setting trajectories for later. As far as the consciousness piece of that, though, um, it, it's always been apparent to me that there are... Uh, many uh, beings in the world that don't communicate through language, and yet uh, the idea that there, that, that there is a form of communication that goes on that's completely apart from language um, has never seemed particularly foreign to me. Um, and in fact, uh, I have felt that I participated in it at some levels. Um, so uh, 
the, the, for me, um, and it's a very personal comment, just doesn't particularly take the form of a traditional religion, but uh, for me, uh, that kind of um, being part of the consciousness of the world falls falls into that category, if you will, if, if categories are what we're using. Um, although, as I pointed out, I think categories sometimes get us into trouble. But um, uh, so, so I've had this, I think, affinity with uh, other species in the world and and uh, uh, non-human um, constructs uh, since childhood, um, and it's been a matter of paying attention to that. <laughs> and it's very easy sometimes not to pay attention. But uh, I miss it uh, when I don't, and um, I'm uh, always gratified when I take time to pay attention. You mentioned to me once that uh, you had done some thinking about consciousness uh, in addition to this experience of nonverbal communication uh, beyond uh, species barriers and this connection with nature. What kind of reflection or thinking about consciousness have you done that has contributed to the uh, emergence of this uh, lifelong connection? Well, it seems to me that uh, at some level there's a, a layer of, of, of what we call consciousness that uh, uh, lies over the... Here we get into trouble because um, it starts to get into the realm of geometry or... Uh, uh, or, or images, but lies over the surface of things, um, or penetrates is perhaps a better way of thinking about it. That interpenetrates, uh, that um, that uh, um, does not belong just to individuals or things as they're manifest in the world. And I, I, I've been um, like everyone else, I guess. I struggle for images that I hold in my own mind that uh, help me organize these thoughts a little bit, although I often have trouble finding words for them, but um, that the reality of the world that we actually look at and that we interact with on a daily basis is just the current uh, manifestation of the way energy has organized itself in the world. Um, and it's done that in ways that present itself to our senses, but that... Uh, but that uh, outside of those senses, uh, those senses and beyond them, um, are is also uh, a, a swirl of, of energy that is not immediately apparent. Um, that um, um, does at some point get into the realm of consciousness as well. Uh, so I, I, I guess I, I try to break down these barriers between uh, um, matter and spirit. Uh, which I, like everyone else, grew up with, um, uh, in order to try to imagine um, an underlying consciousness that uh, uh, is so much like the water that the fish swims in that we, uh, if you ask a fish about the water, they, they wouldn't be able to say much about it, uh, but, um, but, but it is much like the water that the fish is swimming in. And this uh, oceanic uh, energy of, uh, that you describe, do you envision or even hope uh, that at some point science will understand this energy better, or are we just as well, given our 
history of misuse of science uh, if it eludes uh, the grasp of science on uh, an ongoing basis? Um, well, that's a very interesting question. I, I, I actually am not particularly hoping that science um, tries to figure that out in the way that science is currently uh, configured. I, I happen to agree with the perspective that, uh, that the way we think of science right now uh, is the result of, uh, of um, a necess- what people thought at the time, uh, back in the uh, several hundred years ago, was a necessary split between mind and matter and led us into this Cartesian uh, approach to understanding. It's, it's been very helpful, uh, and we've learned a lot about the world and about ourselves using that reductionist approach. But I'm, I'm not either hopeful, nor do I even hope at some level, that uh, applying that same approach to understanding uh, consciousness will either be fruitful or serve us well, necessarily. So uh, I'm... I'm uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to get real optimistic about that. On a, a more mundane level, but uh, related to that, um, you're familiar, I believe, with the studies that Raymond Neutra and others have done on the incidence of leukemia under power lines. And uh, of course, you know about the work of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment uh, in the whole area of electromagnetic fields. And my understanding, and I'm not a scientist, is that that uh, that in many of these studies, the study of childhood leukemia under power lines, that the question of the increased incidence uh, is is reasonably well established. But because they don't understand the mechanism by which uh, electromagnetic fields might uh, uh, relate to this increased exposure. Uh, the science is not widely accepted. Um, uh, and there are certainly other areas in uh, uh, EMF uh, research where analogous problems exist. The question I want to pose to you is whether the issue of um, electromagnetic fields is a an intermediate case of our incapacity to understand uh, uh, energy in the uh, in the broader sense that we've been discussing uh, consciousness and the like um, is are, is EMF on a continuum uh, with the energy of consciousness or are these simply likely completely discrete phenomena that just are at Different levels in uh, in terms of our incapacity to understand them. Well, I think at some level, uh, you know, all forms of energy on, are on a, a continuum, um, and um, so yes, I think they probably are, but maybe quite distant uh, on that continuum. But I do think you're raising an interesting question about the. Uh, when asking about EMF and its and its biological effects and how it's flummoxed so many people and and some people are resistant to understand or to thinking through it because it uh, there seem to be some features of EMF energy that uh, just don't behave.
as if they were discrete particles or chemicals or or whatever, and and show us therefore that we can be, um, in some ways, really um, uh, our our understanding of, of phenomena can be hindered by the categories that we've built. So, for example, we think well, um, it may be the case that. Uh, the hypothesis seems to have some support that uh, EMF causes biological effects, but you'd expect to see bigger effects if you were exposed to more of the energy field, and it doesn't seem to be the case. Therefore, it can't be true. So immediately we're caught up in this notion that if a little bit causes something, a whole lot more causes more. But I mean, uh, that's just a, that happens to be true for some things, but we know it's not true for all things. And so uh, and people are are suddenly realizing, well, how how could it possibly be that such a weak electrical uh, field could cause a biological effect that had any consequence when we're exposed to, to uh, the uh, magnetic field of the Earth, for example, that is orders of magnitude higher? Well, there are plausible explanations for that, but uh, these... Uh, these questions, uh, I think, uh, often get in the way. So I, I think that in raising your question, uh, you've you've used EMF as an example uh, of how our current understanding and our current categories um, uh, are going to keep us from a deeper understanding of some phenomena that we don't even have a clue about, and and. And, and make me think that the time will come uh, if the human species sur- survives when we'll look back um, and realize how primitive our understanding was right now about many phenomena that uh, uh, are occurring in the world. Uh, Ted, a final question. You mentioned Wendell Berry as somebody who's influenced your thinking a great deal. Uh, are there any other authors uh, uh, who uh, come to mind that you would recommend to people who are exploring these issues any other sort of sources of uh, uh, wisdom and uh, light that uh, have moved you and you think uh, would be useful to others? Well, another ecologist that I read fairly widely is Aldo Leopold, and uh, many people know of his uh, San Connie Almanac, but actually he was quite a prolific uh, essayist. Um, and many of his earlier essays have been pulled together in several volumes and republished. Uh, and they're interesting to read because you can see the evolution of his own thought. And as an ecologist, um, he, he, he came to, to uh, uh, understand the deep, deep uh, relationships between uh, individual and, and uh, ecosystem health and came up with the notion of, of health being the capacity for self-renewal. Um, Van Potter, P-O-T-T-E-R, uh, a bio, an oncologist who coined the term bioethics back in about 1970, uh, and his uh, essays, some of which are widely available on the web, are quite interesting to read because uh, um, 35 years ago was concerned about uh, uh, human survival, watching how humans were interacting with the ecological systems in which we were living, and 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 wondering what lives were going to look like, and and being it, and so posed bioethics as being a science for survival, interested in whether we would have lives of quality, and and uh, uh, what those uh, what those lives might look like. Um, so so those are uh, 
two, two people come to mind. Uh, a, one of the uh, physicists who was influential in my thinking about energy fields was David Bohm, B-O-H-M, who wrote very interesting, although he was a theoretical physicist whose work uh, quickly is beyond my understanding in theoretical physics, but his idea of the implicate and ex- explicate order uh, uh, in energy fields and so forth uh, helped me at least to develop some images in my mind about the ways of thinking about the world. So those are a few people that come to mind. Ted Shetler, as a physician and as a leader in the environmental health community who travels tirelessly around the world and has touched thousands and thousands of people with your insights, thank you for talking with us today and thank you for your work. Michael, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to have this conversation.